Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Reduced to dust now, to the merest fragments. Now that is conquest. In this podcast, we're searching for the bones of a king. One of only two English monarchs to earn the epithet Great. The soldier who stopped the Vikings in their tracks. A consummate planner and organiser. Who defended his kingdom with skill and care. A king who championed education. Laying many of the practical and philosophical foundations that would change these British Isles forever. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Neil, last week you took us to Oxford to see a precious golden artefact that's over a thousand years old, the mesmerising Alfred Jewell. Where are you taking us this week? We're still on the trail of Alfred the Great, as it happens, but today uh, it's more of a, what would you say, it's a bit of a gruesome mission, because we're trying to track down his remains, his mortal remains. We're near the city centre in Winchester, uh, amongst modern residential streets at the site of what was once Hyde Abbey and we're looking for the missing king himself we're in Winchester specifically what's known as Hyde Abbey and Hyde Abbey is well, it's a quite strange place to visit in that it hardly exists at all now which is almost the point, but we'll get to that. Hyde Abbey existed once upon a time, but barring really a single upstanding stone archway, there's nothing really left at all. And as will become apparent when we've talked about it, it's the absence that resonates most strongly. When you go to the the coordinates, if you like, the GPS location, that is or once was Hyde Abbey and you stand there in its absence and there ought to be a message in that and hopefully 
by the end of this particular love letter, the message will be apparent and loud and clear. So where does the mystery begin? Well, the Alfred jewel that we talked about last time was obviously a a piece of jewellery or an item made during Alfred's reign, during his lifetime. You know, it had on it, Alfred ordered me to be made. And the story that unfolds at Hyde Abbey is more, more of the Alfred legend, more of the Alfred story. Just as a recap, there was, for a while, an Anglo-Saxon status quo in the territory that becomes, in the fullness of time, England. From the end of the the Roman occupation in the 5th century, and for a few centuries thereafter, the the Anglo-Saxons, you might say, had it their own way. But then from the end of the 700s, by the end of the 8th century AD, there was a, a new kid on the block in the form of the Vikings. From that point on, starting small by attacking Lindisfarne and then gradually building up as they grew in confidence and intent, uh, the Vikings just became more and more a fact of life. Uh, Not just for the Anglo-Saxons in what becomes England, but around the whole archipelago. The people that were occupying the territory that would become Scotland, they had their own troubles with the Scandinavian Viking invaders, and so did the island of Ireland on the other side of the Irish Sea. They were pestered and, and brutalised and raided and pillaged and raped by the Vikings along with everybody else. So they just became part of the landscape. And then from 865, so by, you know, in the second half of the 9th century, the Vikings came to invade this combined force, the Mikkel Heathen Hera, the, the great heathen army, thousands and thousands of them, Danes, Norwegians, Swedes, all came together as a unit and arrived on the East Coast with the intention of taking over the territory of the Anglo-Saxons. And they spent years trying to bring that to to fruition. And it was stopped. It was halted. The speed bump that, that put the brakes on was Alfred, King Alfred. He had one of the kingdoms of the Heptarchy, the Seven Kingdoms. His was Wessex, down in the south. And he alone found the will and really probably more to do with the tactics to halt the Vikings he brought them to bay and so ever after really he was styled Alfred the Great he didn't call himself great that was an epithet that was applied to him by his successors because it didn't do them any harm to be able to claim that they were descended from Alfred the Great you know his sons and grandsons gained from being associated with somebody that they were labelling great. So Alfred was clever in all sorts of ways. And part of what he did, he had success in battle, but he also established a navy. He laid the foundations for a navy so that if needs be, he could tackle the invader at sea. Because it was well known, obviously, that they were seaborne. The Vikings were coming overseas. And so he established the the beginnings of, of a navy to tackle them on the water as well as on land. He founded the boroughs, which were fortified towns that he established all through his kingdom. And it meant that there was a body of men ready and waiting so that if there was trouble anywhere, it was like a spider's web. And if there was trouble anywhere, the signal would sort of vibrate along the thread and it would come to the the nearest borough where there would be an armed company of, of soldiers and they could respond 
quickly. So it was never too far away. You know, wherever the Vikings might strike, because of the setup of the boroughs, there'd be an armed contingent of Alfred's soldiers ready to, to respond. So the boroughs were crucial. And these are some of the things that people associate really with, with England, with Britain. You know, something as fundamental as the boroughs, a measured territory where rules and regulations apply and there being some sort of authority there. So many place names have borough. Well, that all goes back to the time of Alfred. I mean, the reality is that the Viking threat wasn't stopped in its entirety by Alfred. He, he began the process. And really, the, the Northmen, as they became known, the men of the North, they were more properly put back in their box by his, his sons, grandsons, it was a process, but it started with Alfred, and that's why he's justifiably regarded as a foundation stone of what becomes England and ultimately really what becomes Britain. He started that process, and it was a, it was a contribution that lasted ever after. For example, in the state of Virginia, in North America, one of the United States, well, before he became the third president of the USA, Thomas Jefferson was interested in the running of the state of Virginia. And he was aware of the way Alfred had organised his kingdom. And he suggested that the state of Virginia, in each county, it should be divided off into what he called hundreds. And a hundred is a pocket of territory. If you remember when we talked about Cantrer Gwylod, the lost hundred, you know, the Welsh Atlantis, Cantra Gwylod refers to a hundred in the Welsh language and a hundred with a territory, possibly a territory that could raise a hundred fighting men. No one's quite sure what a hundred actually meant in the old days. But as far as Thomas Jefferson was concerned, it was a patch of land, maybe about five or six miles square. And in each hundred, there would be a school that would look after the education of the population. And so that was an idea that was a straight lift from Alfred. And of course, everyone thinks about the wasps in, in the United States of America, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Well, there wouldn't be any wasps if it hadn't been for the inheritance from Alfred the Great. So his, his way of thinking, his way of organising was an export. But they're wrong to go away from this thinking that Alfred on his own, just by his own bravery and brilliance, stopped the, the Vikings. He didn't, but he, he began the process. He showed that it could be done. He's like the first person to run the four-minute mile. You know, once he, had, once he had shown that it was possible to stop them, well, other people get the idea. And that counter-action begins to gain momentum. He was a charismatic leader then. Oh, absolutely. He's a great figure. If anyone in English history deserves great, it's Alfred. You know, he turned back a tide... If he hadn't been able to do what he did, then England and Britain would have been on a, a different path, would have had a different destiny. So he must have had. I mean, it's difficult to say, isn't it? You know, you're talking about someone that died a thousand years ago. Who can say? But, you know, he was a man of, of some learning. He could read. And he understood, more importantly, he understood that, that literacy was very, very important. And he tried to spread it out as far as he could within his kingdom. He must have been charismatic because he inspired the people around him. And he was a leader and, a, and, and capable of inspiring warriors. So yes, it's, pr it's probably fair to say that he was a charismatic 
figure, but, but possibly more significant in the long run. He had a brain. You know, he had a thinking head. And he could get stuff done. But by the end of his life, it was still everything to play for. You know, the Vikings hadn't gone away by the time he died in 899. Why do you think history's been so kind to Alfred? I mean, he's well-remembered, isn't he? I suppose he's, Alfred, he's one of these figures, isn't he? I suppose people know that Alfred burnt the cakes. <laughs> I can remember hearing that at school, you know, that, he, that, a, that a wife left him not knowing who he was, left him watching her cakes cooking on the fire and he fell asleep and she didn't know he was the king and she came back in and gave him a clout round the ear. You know, we've all heard that kind of thing. Or, or, or maybe you've seen the Alfred Jewel at the Ashmolean Museum. Or maybe you've heard about the foundation of the boroughs. But he's there. He's there, stubbornly, immovable, down at the foundation levels, in with the foundation bricks of the story of the British Isles. Where was he buried? He was buried, first of all, uh, in the old minster in Winchester, which is to say a church that was, that was already extant in his lifetime. Amongst these many plans, Alfred had planned to build a new minster, but he, he didn't get around to it. It was still on his to-do list when he died. So he was buried in the old minster. But then his son, Edward the Elder, who succeeded him onto the throne, he built a new minster in the early 900s AD. And, I mean, it sounds like a sort of an odd thing to do in a way. They decided to move... Alfred's body from the old church to the new. Probably because having him associated with it would kind of transfer some of his greatness. And in any event, if you want to attract people to the new church, you know, you put Alfred in there. So he was exhumed. His remains were, were raised up and he was buried with all due ceremony. Then something very important happens in 1110 AD, which is to say the Norman king of England at that point, because of course the Normans come in in 1066 and William's son, Henry I told Winchester to build themselves a new Benedictine Abbey which they duly did so it was built in the year 1110 now it's very important to think about the, the, the fact of the, the Norman conquest having taken place by this time. There was the time of the Anglo-Saxons, challenged by the Vikings, but with the great contribution of Alfred the Great, the Anglo-Saxons hang on in there. And there's still an Anglo-Saxon king on the throne at that point. But then in 1066, the Normans conquer Anglo-Saxon England. You know, the Battle of Hastings and all that. Right, now... It slightly complicates matters in a way, I suppose, but it's worth mentioning that the only other king, English king, who's called Great, is Canute. You know, the one that's supposed to have tried to turn back the, the sea. Of course, he didn't. He, 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 went, he went down and ordered the sea to turn back in the absolute certain knowledge that the sea wouldn't obey him. He was making a point. You know, I'm only human. There's certain things I can't do. Turning back the tide's one of them. So Canute the Great and his son was Hartha Canute and Hartha Canute was the half-brother of Edward the Confessor and he was succeeded by Harold Godwinson 
And it's King Harold who takes one in the eye at the Battle of Hastings, you know, that we see on the Bayou Tapestry. Okay, so there's dotted lines connecting connecting these individuals. Uh, But the point is that by 1066, there had been a kind of a boardroom takeover of England. The Normans arrived. And for most people in England, life went on as normal, but just under new management. The Normans didn't come in huge numbers. Enough of them came, you know, to be there at the sort of boardroom level and to establish the castles and such like. But for, for most, they didn't come and displace the English population. It continued to be the same people by and large, but with new people telling them what to do, which is the Normans. Now, the funny thing is, the Norman conquest is the Vikings' last laugh. Why? Because it's a Viking takeover in all but name. Having tried and failed under the aegis of, you know, the, the Mikkel heathen Hera that was turned back by Alfred the Great, they wait a little while, and then in 1066, the Norman conquest is the Northman conquest. It's people in direct descent from the Vikings. More of the same people who were causing trouble in England were causing trouble in France. Doing the same thing. Arriving off the coast, sailing their longships up the rivers, the Seine, the Loire, causing all sorts of bother for for one French king after another. Until finally in 911 AD, King Charles the Simple of France gave the Vikings a huge territory which becomes Normandy, the territory of the Northmen. It's actually a Viking who becomes King Rollo, who is given this territory. And because he's a Northman, it becomes Normandy, the land of the Northmen. So when they then, in due course, in 1066, invade and bump off the Anglo-Saxon rulership, it's a Viking takeover in all but name despite the fact that by then, by that point, they're real Frenchmen. You know, in that clever way the Vikings had, they had just become what they had once beheld. So in, in France, they became French, took the territory of Normandy. So then by the, when they come in 1066, it's effectively the Viking invasion of England 2.0. Wow, the Vikings got around then. So they, they absolutely they got around. And so... By 1110, it's King Henry I of England, and that's William the Conqueror's son. So it's a Norman king, a Norman king of England, who tells Winchester to to build a new abbey, which they duly do. And Hyde Abbey is the result. It's a Benedictine abbey. It follows the rule of St Benedict. It's built in a new location outside the, the city walls of Winchester. And as part of the opening ceremony, as part of sanctifying the place and making it attractive to to the population, they dig up Alfred again. Alfred, who had already been moved once, he'd already been moved from the old minster to the new, now they dig him up and move him to Hyde Abbey and bury him at the high altar. And they don't move him on his own. By that time, his wife and his son are buried alongside him. So there's his wife, Ellswither, the Queen, and his son, Edward the Elder. So they all get moved. So there's three for the price of one. <laughs> they all get moved with due ceremony down the road and into the new abbey. And they're buried in, in a special stone sarcophagus 
in the vicinity of the high altar of the new abbey. So there he finally, Alfred finally resides, right? He's in his third grave now. But of course, the, the, the story just gets curiouser and curiouser. Like all the abbeys in England, they were all dissolved during the reign of Henry VIII. That time comes when he decides that he's the leader of the Church of England and everything that has gone before can be undone and remade in his image. And so the great wealth of the, of the abbeys is, is dissolved at that point, you know, taken by Henry VIII and shared out amongst whoever he thinks deserves it. And like all the other abbeys, overnight they're just recognised as quarries full of good-dressed masonry that can be used for other things. So all the valuables get taken out and then eventually they're just stone, empty stone shells and people start knocking them down to reuse the, the dressed masonry for other buildings. So in due course, it's gone. And what is eventually built much later is a, a bridewell. Now this is in the last quarter of the 18th century. So in, in the later 1700s, there's call for a new sort of combined workhouse come prison. Ah, that's what's called a bridewell. Called a bridewell. That's a bridewell. A bridewell is a sort of a combination of a prison and a workhouse. So what they do is, the people who are going to be the inmates and the residents and the convicts of the bridewell when it's built, they march the convicts out and have them build it. They become the labour supply. And in the process, as part of the clearing of the ground and, and laying the foundations, the sarcophagus that had held the bones of Alfred and his queen and his son, who was also king, get smashed to bits. And their bones, the bones of the Anglo-Saxon royal family, are just scattered. They're just scattered around the place and become part of the levelling, you know, the rubble surface upon which the bridewell will be built. So at that, at that point, at that moment, Alfred's bones are disturbed yet again. But in this instance, they're scattered to the four winds. So the story just keeps on getting more and more complicated. There was an abbey, then the abbey was destroyed during the dissolution of the, of the abbeys and the monasteries. Then this bridewell was built, this combined workhouse come prison. And then in 1866, okay, 100 years later, a self-described antiquarian called John Mellor turns up and says that he's going to find, amongst other things, the bones of the, of the lost Anglo-Saxon royal family. And he duly does, in as much as he finds something. He digs around and he finds some bones. And he says, here, these are the bones of Alfred the Great. And he parcels them up. And with some, with some ceremony, he hands them over to the minister of a nearby church, William Williams. So he hands him this bundle of bones. And, and William Williams just sort of plays along and creates a little, a little stone-lined burial pit in his churchyard and lays these bones to rest inside and puts a lid on it and forgets all about it. And time begins to pass again. And eventually, it's just effectively an unmarked grave, all but lost and just lying in what is now 
St Bartholomew's Church. St Bartholomew's Church is still there. So, for the longest time, this little sad crypt lay there in the churchyard, mostly forgotten, not so much as a gravestone on it. But there was a a local tradition that the Anglo-Saxon royal family, Alfred the Great and the rest, were in there. And this is where I enter the story. Finally, after more than a thousand years, in 2014, (laughs) I was involved in a project for television uh, because a local group had gone to the trouble of getting permission to exhume the bones, to have a look at them and to test them and to find out once and for all if it was Alfred the Great. Okay? There'd always been interest amongst the cognoscenti who were aware of the crypt being there. Is it really him? Is it really him? So permission was granted by the church. And, you know, very respectfully and and with all the right practices and rituals being performed, uh, the, the crypt was opened. And they take out the bones, and the bones are submitted to all sorts of testing, including radiocarbon dating to find out how old they are. And it's found out, much to everyone's disappointment, that they're much, much too young. Some of the bones are from as recently as the year 1500, according to the radiocarbon dates. Now, Alfred the Great, well, Alfred the Great died in 899. These bones are from, probably from monks and other churchmen associated with whatever, the abbey, while it was still standing. It's bones of of people connected to the Abbey in its later years that have been gathered up by John Mellor, handed to William Williams of St Bartholomew's Church and buried in the churchyard. And the story might finally have ended there, except our expert on the ground, a local archaeologist and bone specialist called Dr Katie Tucker, she was connected to Winchester University and she had been overseeing it from a, a scientific point of view all along. And she remembered, or she knew, that in the year 2000, there or thereabouts, there had been an amateur excavation on the site of Hyde Abbey. A- amateur archaeologists had used it as a kind of a, a training ground to practice their, their excavation skills. And various things had been found, as you would if you excavated in the ruins of, of what had been a, a Benedictine abbey. And amongst other things, a box of bones had been collected. You know, people had been finding individual bits and pieces of bone, and they were all all collected together. And they were they were thought at the at the time to be animal bone, and they were just kept because in the aftermath of archaeological excavations, a lot of stuff is just kept. You know, it goes into museum stores and and university storerooms and and begins to gather dust. But, but it's there in case people want to do follow-up research and study in the future. So there it lay, and and, and Dr Tucker, Katie, remembered that it was there, and it predated her time, so she'd never looked at them before. So just to be, just to dot the I's and cross the T's, because they had been found in the vicinity of Hyde Abbey, she went and got this box out. And almost at once, when she looked at them, she realised that she had, in amongst them, a human male pelvis or or enough of a a human pelvis that she was able to identify it as male okay so the fact that it was in a box that had hitherto been 
dismissed as animal bone caught her attention because she thought it's definitely not animal bone so just exactly what is it so we had this bone with her consent submitted to radiocarbon dating just just to check and the date that came back was the decade that overlaps the end of the 800s and the start of the 900s AD so the date that came back was from the decade in which Alfred the Great had died he died in 899 so it was perfectly in the age range for Alfred the Great now the circumstantial evidence that was very very persuasive in the end was the fact that it was bone that had been found in an abbey that wasn't built until 1110. So everyone in the graveyard would have been buried in 1110 or later because the abbey had to be there before they could be buried in its churchyard. So how do you explain the pelvis of a man who had died at the end of the 800s and start of the 900s? Who is the only person we know about who could have been ceremonially reburied in front of the high altar in the new Hyde Abbey? Well, it's either Alfred the Great or his son. And so, when you add all the circumstantial evidence together, it gave us the startling possibility that the pelvis was part of the mortal remains of Alfred the Great. Talk about making it into the 21st century by the seat of your pants. And I have held this in my hand. (laughs) I I have held in my hand what is almost certainly the arse bone of King Alfred the Great of England. Wow. And even talking to you about that now puts the hairs up on the back of my neck. You know, the king that founded England, the king who's in at the foundation level of Britain itself. Alfred the Great. What do you think of that? I I think it is absolutely extraordinary and so fantastic that the bone turned up. I know, I mean, the chances, but then... The fact is, you can never prove these things beyond doubt. It's possibly not admissible in a court of law. But when you consider... When you consider that circumstantial evidence, it begins to look very much... Like what we had found by a chance in a million, needle in the haystack, was a fragment of the royal line of the Anglo-Saxon house. And so I said at the beginning, you go to St Bartholomew's Church, it's a lovely little traditional English parish church, and then you walk from there and you find nearby, across the road actually, a fine uh, masonry archway. And that is the only upstanding fragment of... Hyde Abbey, the abbey that was built in 1110. Everything else is gone, but this archway is another chance survival. It's a gateway, you know, from one part of the abbey to another. And so you can see that. But then you walk beyond the gateway and you're into open parkland, you know, where people cycle and walk their dogs and do all the things. And you walk out into an area of, um, you see, it catches your eye. There's an area laid out like a little formal garden and it's like gravel when you walk in the local authorities have laid down three dark marble grave slabs 
flat on the ground, you know, they're not standing up, they're, they're down in the gravel. And it, it has on them that they commemorate the graves of Alfred and his wife and his son. You know, because archaeological excavation has determined where the high altar of Hyde Abbey was. And so these modern grave slabs have been laid down in the vicinity of the location of the former high altar of Hyde Abbey. But you stand there and you look out at the nothingness and in your mind's eye you tell yourself that here once was a a huge, grand, Benedictine Abbey and that it had at its Holy of Holies a sarcophagus that for a while at least contained the mortal remains of the Anglo-Saxon royal family, the line that was knocked off the throne by the Norman Conquest in 1066. And you can read all you like about the Norman Conquest and how William the Conqueror came in and he became the new ruler and he, he displaced everyone and replaced everyone. You can read about that. But when you go to Hyde Abbey and you consider that somewhere out there under the grass, reduced to dust now, to the merest fragments, must be the rest of the remains of Alfred and his queen and his son. They're out there somewhere. Now that is conquest. They are dust in the grass. That's the Norman conquest right there at Hyde Abbey. momentous battle whose repercussions have reverberated through time right up to the present day. The Gales and the Picts had buried the hatchet, forging alliances and coming together. The land of the Angles was growing in size and power. Clashing, a bloodbath ensued that was long remembered as the Great War, a war that sliced the Long Island in two Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Binance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.